You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, Michelle Rogers is back on the podcast. She appeared in episode 108 to speak about potty training. Today, we'll talk about how to help parents of autistic children in developing communication skills, especially with nonverbal children. Communication skills are important for autistic children's development. They help with behavior, learning, socialization. Oftentimes, autistic children need support to develop these communication skills. Michelle was that champion to get her daughter where she is today and has helped hundreds of mothers and their autistic children thrive along the way. Michelle, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I'd, I'd like just to start and, and give us, I guess, the parental understanding and, and where you're coming from with why communication is such a key skill for your family, for your daughter, and for the autistic community in general? So um, I have a belief in, that I kind of share with my my base of uh, families that um, every child with autism, no matter how severe their autism symptoms present, have to have three foundational skills to have a chance at a life of independence. And one is potty training. Uh, the second one is we want uh, minimal um, problem behavior that could be tantruming or being aggressive to themselves or others. And the third one is communication. And the reason I say that is because number one is uh, aggressive behavior, problem behavior, and communication nine times out of 10 go hand in hand. A lot of children, even our pre-verbal babies, will express um express themselves with behavior in, in the form of tantrums or self-harm or hurt, harming other people because that's how they get their needs met. So if we can teach uh, these children just a functional way to communicate, it really takes um, opportunities for them in their life to the next level. So um, I guess one of the first things I just want to point out too is that as um, neurotypical parents, we believe that communication and language, verbal language, are the same thing, and they're actually not. Um, um, babies, species, everything uh, starts their process of communication by uh, through behavior. And once we can kind of understand that, and we can understand that if a child is pre-verbal and we want to get that chance at verbal language, we have to be able to give them a functional fluent method of communication first, but I call it like a bridge form of communication to have, and, and the studies prove this, that if we can give a pre-verbal child the chance at um, having a fluency in something like a, a PECS or sign language or an AAC device, they'll have a better shot um, to have verbal language at some point, so. Yeah, and you know, I'm glad that, that you put it into that perspective when you were talking through those key skills, is that communication is often the barrier that leads to maladaptive behaviors having purpose. If communication isn't there and isn't effective, you're going to lean to whatever is going to work. And oftentimes that's going to be an exaggerated response. It's going to be a frustrated response because nobody understands what you're trying to be able to indicate. And when you look at even in the treatment sphere, is that when you're looking at maladaptive behavior or when you're looking at safety concerns or you're looking at those core things that you actually treat, communication is what you're actually building to replace all that with. So 
when you when you were talking through that, it it really rings a bell because when you're looking at treatment plans, that's where it starts and that's where it lies. So when you were going through this process with your daughter, initially it's gotta be frustrating as a parent because you have no idea what they're trying to be able to tell you, what they're trying to be able to communicate. And oftentimes you're guessing because you're not living within their within their mindset at that time. How did you get over that hurdle of saying, okay, this is just frustrating, not understanding, to how can I help? Yeah. So I actually, with Juliana, um, I remember like a, a switch almost being flipped at around a year old where I started to see like any words that she had, she lost. She may gain some new words, but then she'd lose them. And um, I saw her demeanor change where she seemed like like really angry all the time. She was tantruming over like everything. And I remember even saying to my mother at that point, I'm like, where did my happy baby go? I, at that time, I was so um, naive to understand that the behaviors were her way of communicating. I just thought she was in a bad mood all the time. And then um, once the diagnosis came and I, you know, had to take time to process that, right? Because I I had, you know, all of us have these visions of what we're going to show up as, as parents when the baby's on its way or the baby's in our arms. And when a diagnosis comes, it's like that whole identity you had that of the parent you thought you were going to be kind of goes out the window. And uh, when this happened, I just felt like I kind of put my hands up, not even knowing what to do. And I really just let the therapist at the time make decisions. And they originally had decided that they wanted to do pecs with her and one of her stims um that she'd spent hours a day doing is she'd dump out her toy box and instead of playing with the toys she'd pick up each toy one by one and just start spinning them in her hands and she was drooling no eye contact no no like connection with us at all and um i remember thinking you know if we're gonna do this not even real not even having the um knowledge or understanding that the tantruming was a, a form of communication at that time. I said, well, if we're going to do this, this is a waste of time because she's taking the PEX cards and she's just flipping in her hand. She's getting distracted. Let's, what else could we do? And then that's when sign language happened for us. And then, and then I had my thoughts about that. It was interesting. I didn't have thoughts about PEX. I had, you know, thoughts about sign language, like, great. If we teach her sign language, she's never going to speak. And I remember just uh, one of the therapists, like, I can't explain it to you, but you know, it just happens. And at that time, I didn't know that studies had shown that if you teach a preverbal child another form of communication like sign language or PECS or a communication device, they have a better shot at, at vocal language. So I said, all right, I was just open and willing because I wanted to help my kid. And it was a byproduct. Not only was did she learn 10 signs in a week, it was crazy. I'll never forget this. She learned 10 signs within a week because I was so committed to her using this and not getting anything unless she asked for it with her hands, um, the tantruming stopped like immediately. And that was how I made the connection. Like I didn't even realize they were associated until it stopped with as soon as she had like 10 signs for things that she asked for every day. And what the therapist couldn't explain to me at the time, she's like, I don't know what to tell you. All I know is that this just works and this is how it happens. I can tell you firsthand experiencing this that when she learned sign language, it was like, it was the first sign of bringing my baby back to me because she was mm -hmm. off in her own world and twisting toys. And if all of a sudden she was hungry and she wanted a cookie, she had to come find me to show me the sign. Mm -hmm. And it brought, it, it brought us like, it, we were on separate islands at that point. And that bridge form of communication, I guess that's why I call it a bridge, brought her back, brought us connected again. 
I mean, that's that's so powerful. And it, it, and it does. I mean, it makes sense, even if you uh, are neurodiverse or you are neurotypical, is that oftentimes having some form of sign language as you're developing language or physical manifestation of language prompts the vocal part to it. So it's like those two things do go together. Um, and body language is important and engagement is important. All of these things kind of play a role. But how much did motivation for your daughter in realizing that there is a simple way to communicate to get her needs met? Was that was that when you saw that and saw her start defaulting to her signs rather than the behaviors? Was that a light bulb moment for you of like, hold on, whoa. There is a way for me to start engaging on a deeper level right now. Yeah. Um, for me, the light bulb moment was how fast she picked up 10 signs. She was learning them faster than I could remember what represented what. That's how fast that I saw her see the value in it. Like, oh, my gosh, this is so much more effective. This is so much. Every time we use the sign more for cookie, one of the things I do is if um, I'm telling parents, if you're going to use sign language, I'm very intentional about the signs. This usually means more. Give me. I don't do that because I, that could mean et for everything. I make every sign super intentional to what they interact with every day. So when she would come to me and do cookie and she got cookie, it really gave her her power back as an individual, as a little human being to be able to advocate for herself in the very simplest way. So, yeah, I mean, for her, it was it was profound. For me, it was profound. It really that opened the floodgates of like, wait a minute, this isn't good. This doesn't necessarily have to be some sort of death sentence, this diagnosis. Maybe we can do something here. Maybe she does have an opportunity to move forward and have a chance at an independent life, because that's all I was thinking. We all when we get the diagnosis. We're all thinking Rain Man because nobody understands that the spectrum really it could be a spectrum. And she could have been on. She was on the more severe side when she was diagnosed and she traveled through to now where I know she'll live an independent life and now I call it like the fine-tuning of the dials at this point we're learning more about like how to be a good friend how to read sarcasm social behaviors within uh verbal communication but gosh you know sign was the ticket for us and what was possible well even that that initial motivation the ability to start realizing the value of communication that's a that's that's a starting point um it can be just as equally frustrating as you develop language as you develop more communication skills for your communication to still be ineffective which is that fine tuning or that that uh what you were describing as far as kind of like dialing in on you know how do i move this forward when you talk with families and when you are trying to describe, you know, that concept or that fear of my child is isolating, but they're almost doing it intentionally because communication is, or people in their environment don't have the value because they can't communicate with them. They can't engage with them. Or when they try and engage, the people don't respond the way that they're hoping they will. So why engage in the first place? When families see that isolation, what is their initial feeling towards it? I mean, are you seeing people say, whoa, hold on, this is just too much. I hate the fact that my child doesn't feel value in my relationship with them at this moment. Yeah, so this is what happens, right? When a family comes to me for support or for help or coaching or whatnot, they're wrapped in the, the story of the diagnosis and all of the behaviors that go with it. 
when we are looking at that, it's almost like I always I used to describe it as like a whack-a-mole. Like every time I'd attack one thing, another thing popped up. And when you're kind of in that fight or flight response of the diagnosis and all the behaviors that go with it, you can't really find the root to solving for it. You're just living this life, spinning your wheels in what I like to call as like mental mud, where you can't really even see a path outside of this is my existence now. And that's the death sentence. That's the true death sentence for a child that, that has a diagnosis when a parent believes that about their circumstance. I want what I do with parents is I want to show them that the opportunities to get this child to communicate with them are available to them every day. And the child is actually showing that to them in behaviors that may be inappropriate right now. And we want to give them the opportunity to channel that in a way that's functional for everybody in the family. So what I usually do for families that are really trapped in that belief that there's no connection, there's no way I can get through, that there is, I kind of disproved that by kind of going through their day and seeing like, where are those moments that we could be using these opportunities to get the child to connect? So that's kind yeah. of- Yeah, and, and the the effort that you're putting into to broaden the community of those that your child can communicate with, I think it's so important. You don't want it to where like only one person can respond. Only one person can I engage with. You want the world to see that. And I'd like to normalize this for a little bit just because I'm gonna put it into a work context. If I'm trying to communicate with somebody at work mm-hmm. and trying to be able to explain or justify or clarify something, and I'm not able to get that message to to that one individual, and I'm not able to figure out with them on a better way of communicating that, what's the next step typically? My guess is I avoid them. I go to somebody else. Or I start pulling myself away from those projects. And that's the same thing that I'm seeing with a lot of children and and young adults when their communication is ineffective is that they pull away or they or they say, I'm not gonna engage in that part, which is constricting. You just reduce their world almost immediately. So how do you broaden it? I mean, if I'm teaching a sign language, not everybody's gonna understand cookie. Not everybody's gonna understand the sign for slide uh, with my child. And they might come up to somebody in the park and wanna do these things. How do you broaden it? How do you create community? So the way I see it with something like sign language, right? So PECS and AEC is pretty much one of those uh, topographies where you're kind of, everyone would understand if a child brought you a picture of an apple that they wanted an apple. With sign language, for I'll give you from my personal experience with this. If this bridge form of communication, whether it be sign, PECS or AAC device is implemented in a way that's um, fluency is super important. We're committed. We do not give the child anything unless they sign for it. And obviously we're creating signs. We're not just expecting them to know magical signs. But um, when we do that, I always imagine like a neural pathway from the brain to to, to, to voice as dormant. And this bridge form activated at at its maximum capacity, I mean, fluency, um, everyone's committed to this in the household. It really kickstarts the, that that pathway, and then I start to see children babbling, and then that babbling can turn into sounds, and sounds can turn into word approximations. So I, I got to tell you, the families that I've worked with, nine times out of ten, when we really are committed, and I see, you can see it, the progress we start to sound, hear sounds start coming from a preverbal child that we've never heard before, and then if I get sounds, then we can start to now all of a sudden we start hearing them repeat. Oh, now I can now I've got non-functional language, whether it's 100% coherent or not. Juliana started with like 
she used to, instead of saying goldfish or fish, she would go, and I rewarded that. So what we want to understand is like, whether you're, if your child's in that bridge, the goal here is not to stay here. I mean, a goal here is the first goal here is to extinguish problem behaviors that might be associated with it, frustrations that the child's having. We want to give them their voice back in, in this temporary bridge topography, what I'm assuming it could potentially be temporary. Then we want to look at the progress that's being made with that. Is the child continuing to build on that with no vocals? Is the child starting to make sounds? And then that's kind of where we kind of go into a direction that might be more suitable for like the general population to interact with this child. If that makes no, sense. And, that, and that makes that makes a lot of sense. And what also I think I'm hearing reverberate through a lot of what you're discussing and what a lot of what you're recommending is this is not a one size fits all model. No. Is that clinicians get stuck in this is what I teach. I teach blank. I do blank. The child might have their own way of communicating. And I think that you always have to do that strength-based assessment and understand what is the easiest way for them to start that process. When you talk with families, are you are you helping them to identify, you know, what is it that your child's doing right now? to be able to understand, are there any small nuances that I can take from their communication system at the moment to be able to build on and shape over time? Or do you start with one thing like uh, picture communication versus sign and just say, let's try it for a bit and see which one takes? Yeah. So there's no fail with this stuff. See, everybody thinks that there's some type of like, we're going to pull back the curtain and share all our deep secrets when I have that perfect practitioner. It's not about that. It, honestly, the, 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 the real journey is to try things and fail. I've failed so many times than uh, I've won with Julia. I don't even call it failing anymore. I only call it like learning. Like, all right, this is a teachable mom moment or a teachable child moment, you know, between the two of us. And then we try something else. When it, when it comes to like a strength-based assessment, I like the way that you word that. I'm sure I, I don't really call it that. I basically say to the parents, I said, I need you to tell me based on knowing what these three options are, what do you think your child will take to? Now, at the time when Juliana was, they had recommended PECS, I was still getting out of the, the grief of the diagnosis, you know, being sad about like the life I thought we were going to live, right? So I wasn't a hundred percent like focused on when they first said, all right, we're going to show her these pictures. It's when I actually saw it in practices I'm trying to teach her that she was flipping them. And I said, that's not going to work. If you have a child that's fixated and twisting or tapping or whatever, that's going to be a distraction to teaching this. So then that when once I kind of, I was starting to come out of my fog of everything. I said, you know what? I just have to, I have to work with what I got here. And I looked at it and I said, we need to do something that makes sense for everybody. It makes sense for her. And that's how sign language emerged for her. So I do the same thing. So I, I like the, the technical term of a strength-based assessment. What I'll do is I'll talk to the parents and I'll say, well, what have they been exposed to? Have they used any bridge forms of communication in the past? What is school using? How do you feel about carrying around a book if that's, if that's what the school is going to do. I want it to not just to be, I, mean, I do like that it's based on what the child's strengths are, but you have to see it through. Generalizations just as important, if not more important than this child just picking up and using the picture. So yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. No, it's not one size fits all. I had, a, I had a couple of families last night on my group coaching call. One had a child that could repeat anything he heard, but was getting very frustrated in front of the pantry when um, she opened it and she wasn't picking the right things. With that particular child, usually with a repeater, I go right to let's get him to let's get him to repeat to get access. But because he's showing problem behaviors, I want to extinguish that first. 
So in that instance, I said to mom, let's put the pictures of all of the different treats on the front of the pantry. So when he walks up, he can immediately point to it versus trying to look through all of the things to try and figure out what he wants. That, that's going to stop a problem behavior before it starts. So yeah, so yes, absolutely. You have to cater this very specific to where the child is at. When I talk to uh, families, I say, okay, what can they do? Are they pre-verbal? Are they completely silent? Are they making sounds? Can they repeat things but not use the language functionally? And then that's when we make the decision as to what I think would be and what they think would be most importantly, more than not what I think uh, would be the best course forward. Yeah, you actually mentioned one of my pet peeves. It's the inability for something to transition across environments. So yeah. one of the things that drives me nuts at times mm -hmm. is when you have a system that's being done in a school and a separate system done by a speech pathologist, a third system by a behavioral team. And then the parent is like, what in the world do you guys want me to do? Like, come on. The consistency is so important. And how often do you see that breakdown causing major rips in a child's understanding of how to communicate effectively? When families start working with me, I see it all the time. So like almost every time there's something going on different at home than at school. And this is the other thing too, you know, school, you know, it's interesting. I'll have a mother say, I can't, pull, I can't take an iPad and use it for pie training. I can't take an iPad until he requests it because he's going to throw a major tantrum, but he goes to school all day without it. You know what I mean? So it's like the first thing we have to kind of understand is that, you know, we need the parent to take their power back as parents and say, listen, you know, we, what ends up happening, diagnosis comes, we all just kind of put our hands up and say, all right, just tell me what to do. And we're asking people who are overtaxed, <laughs> who have many a student, who see your child, a, a small percentage of their life where you're living with this child 24-7. Somebody had said to me, that is so uh, great, you know, uh, I was in a doctor's office and the doctor says, you know, they get really upset when you Google stuff and they say, you know, don't, don't mistake your Google search for my medical degree. And I said, well, you know what, don't mistake your 30 minute or your hour and a half seminar for me living with this 24 seven, you know what I mean? So what I want to say here is that the first thing I teach families that come in that have like topographies all over the place is get your power back. What do you want to do? What are you going to use and be consistent with? And then you tell the school that that's what we're doing from now on not the other way around. So true. I mean, it, it's not even the best advocate, but the best the best clinician at, at most of the time is, is the parent. I mean, they need, and the stakeholder. I mean, if you have the chance to talk to the, per, the person receiving care, like those are the people that need to have their voice heard throughout the process. So having that opportunity to actually say, listen, let's get all on the same page. This is what's working for me and my family right now is a great first step to be able to start creating that consistency. So what are some of the misunderstandings that, that people have on communication regarding autistics in general? I mean, what are some of the big things that you run into where people are like, hold on, I don't even get it, or they throw out a myth? Yeah, so the first one is that communication and language are the same thing. And they don't value what bridge brings to harmony of home especially to a child who is using tantruming or throwing things or hitting people to get what they need, their needs met, or fecal smearing. I had a mom I talked to last week, the child fecal smeared on the wall. It was, we figured out it was a dual, dual payoff for him. It was attention seeking and he loved baths. So, you know, like we, you know, we, that's the first thing is to understand that 
behavior, even bad, especially bad behavior, is the rawest, purest form of communication. And that communication and language are not the same thing. You want to get communication first, and then we can work on vocal language. So that's a big misconception. Another one is, is that uh, because the mouth doesn't work, the ears don't work. <laughs> so they don't think that their kids understand anything you're saying. I said, uh, presume competence. I know you don't believe it, but they can understand almost everything you say. It's just that they can't vocalize back. And we always, I always disprove people. parents are like, no, they don't understand anything. I'm like, I know it's not true. There's things that they, they know outside. They know when you're getting in the car, they know when you're, you know, when, when you're opening the fridge or the, when the bath is running, they, they know more than we think. And then what happens is, is that way I say is presumed confidence is because you start talking to them more. A pre-verbal child needs a lot of uh, verbal input. We really want to just overload them with the with the with conversation in general and what I did this too I was totally guilty of this I did not talk to her there were rides to and from places and I bail, I turned the radio on I wouldn't even like acknowledge her in the back seat because I'm like well, you know she she doesn't talk she probably doesn't understand what I, I was I couldn't and when she learned those 10 signs in a week I couldn't have been more wrong I was like oh my gosh this whole time I was like talking about her in front of her like she wasn't here and that's just like I think that's one of the bigger ones too it's just to presume confidence just because you're going to show up differently if you believe that they understand everything you're saying yeah I mean I think that that goes a long way as presume is presuming that competence is even the way that you're choosing words and um the articulation that you have in your in your sentence structure is that it shouldn't be diminished simply because you're talking to somebody who might communicate differently than you. Um, I think that you you take their lead, is that if somebody is is looking at you like they're confused on what you're talking about, well, then change the way that you're communicating. Don't presume that they can't understand it, just change your communicative style. Um, what about the idea that, you know, once somebody establishes vocal skills, communication is intact versus this being a lifelong process, and there's so many nuances to effective communication that need to be continuously developed, whether it's for me or for you or for our children. I mean, is that something that that you have to kind of explain to families often? Um, I, it was funny because last night, this week, we had a very strong example of this with Juliana. Juliana is 100% verbal. She's chatty. She's got friends. She's it's her first year in a gen ed class. It's been a it's been a whirlwind for her from diagnosis to where she is today. And we had this situation. She's always been somewhat of a picky eater. And every day we're packing these snacks and she's not eating them. And I'm like, I understand. You know, we've generalized that you like yogurt. You've had it at home. You've had it at grandma's. You've had it in the car. Whatever. But every time I pack it, you're not eating it. So then we give her applesauce because we know that's a, a, a what we would consider a preferred. She's generalized it. She even considers it a preferred. And she's not eating. We're asking her this, and she's just saying, "I don't have time. I don't have time." And I'm like, "I just don't understand. They got you know, there's snack time, right?" So then finally, this is going on for um, this is what December. This is going on September, where very randomly, very rarely was she eating snack. So I call. I we go into a team meeting at with the school, and it was the first time I thought I knew something was up, and but I thought to ask, I'm like, "What's going on with snack? <laughs> you know, what is she doing?" And she's like, "Well, it's a working snack." And I was like, what's a working snack? I had no idea, right? And every time I'd ask Juliana, all she'd just say is, well, I just didn't have time. I, it was too busy. I didn't have time. 
it was the way I was asking. And this is one of the things about their brains. I just have to remind myself because I laughed when they said that because I know something's up and I wasn't asking the right questions. I'm trying to solve for the type of foods I'm putting in there, not the complexity of having to, if it's a working snack, they have their books out, they've got their, their water bottle, now there's the snack and now I'm bringing in like applesauce or yogurt, which needs to be opened and a spoon. And it's, it's too much for her processing wise to be taking notes and listening and manipulating the snack. So then I understood, I was like, oh, it's the foods. We need to give her something that's like, open a bag, grab it, <laughs> grab and go. You know what I mean? So then when she got home last night, I said, is it because that you're busy when you say you're busy or, you know, is it because you have too many things on your desk and it's hard to, to do the yogurt and the apples? Yes. Yes. I can't. It's sometimes I, in the teachers taking, teaching us, she can't help me open it. And I was like, Ah, now the floodgates open because I asked a different question. I was so fixated mm -hmm. that it was the type of food and that we were regressing food-wise, but it was the way I was asking it. So yes, communication is a ever-evolving, um, uh, ever-evolving skill for even neurotypicals to talk to each other, much less our, our neurodiverse children. Absolutely, and and I mean, you have demonstrated obviously because you've been you've been successful coaching others. Is that 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 patience? that persistence to continuously learn, the ability to accept failure as a chance to be able to learn and develop new skills for yourself. But other families are gonna run into these roadblocks all the time. This is not a linear process. It's two steps forward, five steps back at some times. Like, how do you prepare families for the, the roadblocks and the challenges and some of those discouraging periods of time during communication development that they're gonna experience through that process. So like what I actually, I don't actually word it as a roadblock because a roadblock is almost like stop, go back, right? What I consider is just like, um, I guess if I were gonna word it, I always have like a graph on a wall and I say that this is the path from pre-verbal to communication. And along the way, you're gonna hit some bumps in the road, better, better kind of, like obstacles. And you just gotta, the true fail, the only true fail of being a parent is quitting on your kid. So when you hit them, you can, that's it. She's never going to eat snack again. I'm just going to stop packing it. No, I kept poking at it. We kept, I was going the wrong way. I kept trying different complicated foods to give her during snack instead of understanding the real problem was that it's a working snack. Even giving her a banana because we're working on her fine motor. She's still an OT. It's hard sometimes for her to open a banana. So like even something, you know, like once I understood, had I quit at like, okay, I guess she's just not a snacker. You know what I mean? And this, you know, went about my way, I, I would have missed the huge lesson in that, and that I just need to start asking better questions. <laughs> Stop getting fixated on what I think the problem is, and maybe ask her more questions so that she, and it, it was there. She had it in her the whole time, and what her answer wasn't wrong. She wasn't lying to us, but like, I need her to, I need to ask questions that are going to help her give me more to help mm -hmm. her. Had that not happened, that I wouldn't call it like a, a, a roadblock, more like a bump in the road. And I didn't work through it, I wouldn't have been able to grow and now know when other stuff that comes up that has that similar feel to it, that I'm going to ask a lot more questions, even outside of what I might think the problem is. Yeah, I mean, life would be so boring uh, without some of these diversions at times. Yeah. And if everything was always a straight path and there was no challenges, I, I don't know that I don't know that we'd have as much fulfillment in what we do and in, in our lives and our, watching our children learn those same skills that we're learning with them on 
hey, how do you solve something when you run into a challenge? Let's take a step back. Let's let's get through this. So you you do such a wonderful job, Michelle, on being able to relate to families and being able to kind of put things into perspective because you've experienced quite a bit with your own life, uh, with your own children. And so where can people reach out? to you. I, I want to make sure that people have access to this sort of coaching as, as much as you can get clinically. It's really nice to be able to talk to another family that has, you know, lived the life. So where can they reach out to you? Um, sure. So you can either go to my website or you can go to Instagram. Uh, my website is Michelle with two L's, M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E, B as in boy, Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S.com. My uh, Instagram handle is the same, Michelle B. Rogers. Uh, you can reach out there. You can always send an email to Michelle at Michelle B. Rogers, and that comes straight to me, and I'm happy to support as many families as I can. Well, thanks again, Michelle. And it, and it sounds to me like we've tackled two of the three things now. We've we've tackled pottying. That's we've right. now tackled communication. I think that this uh, severe behavior issue probably needs to be discussed at some point. So hopefully I we can bring you back on. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.